This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 24. Working Class Audio. Navigating the world of freelance recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Okay, everybody, welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 24. One more, and we're at 25. Major milestone coming up which is really great. I'm very excited. I hope you are. Uh, On today's show, I'll just cut to the chase. We have Gary Phillips on. Gary and I met over communications, over Facebook, over working class audio. And if you've heard of Kids Bop, maybe you have kids, maybe you don't, but maybe you've heard of Kids Bop. It's basically it's pop songs being sung by kids. Then you know Gary's work. Gary handles that series, mixes it, produces, and handles all the instrumentation. Um, it's a pretty big job, and, and, and having done similar work in the past, I can definitely tell you it's a challenging job for him. Gary actually started out as a uh, session guitarist in the East Coast and eventually found his way into the world of doing uh, commercials and, and uh, music, for, music for soundtracks, etc., and eventually found his way into this Kids Bop gig. And so we talk from his new home in California because he is a East Coast transplant and he is in California down in the Los Angeles area. So uh, Gary Phillips coming up and I think you're going to enjoy that. Okay, one thing I'm curious about, and this is kind of an off the wall question, but what do you all use for invoicing? Are you making homemade invoices to send to clients? And those clients, you know, are can run the gamut. It can be a band, it can be a corporation, it could be, you know, the neighbor down the street who maybe you're, I don't know, maybe you're digitizing their vinyl and cleaning it up. I don't know. It could be a number of things, but invoicing, how are you getting paid? Are you just sending out an email? Are you subscribing to a service? If you can, if you have the time, go over to the Facebook page and chime in. Um, I don't, I'm not endorsing these people, nor am I giving them, nor are they paying to be mentioned here, but I have jumped around a bit. I was on Harvest for a while, harvest.com. That was a $12 a month service. And then uh, I found a company called, uh, I think it's Hivage. Yeah, Hivage. And that was free with a few paid add-ons. So I dumped Harvest and went to Hivage. And now I see there's a company out there called Do dot com d-u-e like the invoices do and i'm checking them out and uh i've also you know i I use square for credit card payments for people so i'm also uh sometimes using square as my invoicing for the clients that uh want to pay with credit cards so i'm just curious what everybody else's experiences are so if you want to chime in on facebook and let us know uh that would be great and that's it so um Let's jump into it. Let's let's have a chat here with Mr. Gary Phillips and let's talk about the world of Kids Bob here on Working Class Audio. Hey, Gary. Hey, man. How you doing? I'm good. Hey, man. I feel like I'm meeting like a real celebrity. I mean, I'm like so hooked on your show. That- <laughs> It's funny how that happens. Uh, well, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, man. It's a pleasure. You work currently on the Kids Bop music series. I do. And and for those that don't know, that is, of course, basically recreations of top charting pop songs with kids singing, correct? That's right. That's right. And you're involved in the in the production aspect of that. And are you mixing as well? I'm pretty much doing everything. You know, it's really 
when I say everything, I'm obviously not singing on them, but, you know, from the begin, we build the tracks from the kick drum up and then I all the way through cutting the vocals and mixing. You know, I hire musicians all the time. I have an assistant in New York who helps. There's other guys who make tracks. Obviously, these kids come in and sing and they're amazing. But at the end of the day, it's just like, you know, when there's 22 tracks that need to be delivered in in uh, six weeks, it's like that's on me. That's not that's not some mixer guy who, you know, who's down the road or something like that. So, yeah. We texted back and forth on Facebook over this because I had done the Karaoke Revolution video game for Konami. Right, right. I did two iterations of that. And I mean, that was mind blowing how difficult that was. And so then that's that was kind of what I was wondering about that. Like, are, do you have to recreate those tracks from the beginning when you're doing those? Or are you working with um, like label stems? Ground up. Ground up. Like, so, you know, so you know what I'm talking so about. So like whether it's Copacabana or uh, Come Sail Away by Sticks or right. Bohemian Rhapsody, right. when I saw what you were doing, I was like, oh, he knows how that goes. That's It's an ass kicker, Yep, as you know. And, and tell me if you agree with this. I think it makes you not only a better musician, but a better engineer, producer, mixer, because you have to deconstruct something that you didn't have a part in originally. I absolutely agree with that. And I would say it, when you're doing that kind of stuff, it's just like your ears have to be tuned to every aspect of the arrangement from like, what is that kick drum sound? And how can I kind of duplicate that? Is that a thwack? Or is that a oom? You know, there's a few different styles of kick drum. And it's just like, if you can't really identify that, like right off the bat and then tweak it from there, you're going to have a hard time building the rest of that track. If you're starting with this foundation, that's not right. And, and like that kind of listening discrimination happens all the way through that production. It's almost like a musical tracing paper in the sense that it's just like, you know, you got to find what is the decay on that snare drum? Because if it's like, if I don't have my kick and snares, the, the feel of that right nothing's going to work on top of that you know that all matters you know what i mean and it all it all counts all the way up through the production right up to the to when you're mixing and it's just like what is that vocal effect because to me it's just like yes it's musical tracing paper but almost more importantly than that it's just like you're trying to recreate this vibe for this audience you know remember your audience for these kids records is really a really young audience so what is it to listen to music when you're at that age it's certainly not anything analytical where you like when we geek out on music as music fans and you say oh man that, that snare is amazing or it's just like hear that groove it's just like that's not what kids feel they feel the whole thing they listen to the whole thing so it's just like what we need to do to make that convincing for that audience is really recreate the feel of that track and you know a big part of that is really getting those getting your groove right at the beginning getting the basic sounds right so you're kind of in the ballpark and then we can create the vibe and that way when you know the intro hits in those first 20 seconds the kids know what song it is you know the, the kids bop has a 24 7 station on sirius xm now so wow. those kids know the songs off of radio disney perhaps so it's just like if they're switching between radio disney and kids pop radio you know it's got to be convincing but it's cool it's for kids and it's you know kids singing you know so my experience with that stuff in the past has been like you go through you flush it out you 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 get all you start to layer all the parts in then somebody else that was involved in our thing 
on occasion would come back and say, guys, you forgot this one little minuscule part that we're uh. like, what? What are you talking about? And we all sit and we're like, oh, shit. Right, right. Okay, right. let's call so-and-so and get them in and get this part done. And Right, right. And we were doing, in my thing, we were doing like uh, acoustic drums. So like we did, you know, um, Phil Collins uh, in the... Um, oh, right, right. I can feel the- it in the air of the night. Sure, sure. Getting those tonalities was very hard. So in your case, you're dealing more in more modern music. Uh, Almost exclusively top 40. Typically, they've been putting out two of these records a year. This year, they're starting to put out four of them a year and kind of do them, you know, on a more frequent basis and kind of just to try and keep it more current. But along with that, a lot of times they'll be maybe seasonal stuff or specialty things. So there might be a Christmas album. Um, They've done a Halloween record. We did a Beatles record. Occasionally there are these things that are not top 40, but yeah, for the most part, it's, it's top 40 stuff. And like, I would never cut live drums for any of these things, unless we're talking about just overdubbing a part that I couldn't program. Changes are constantly needing to be made. And just to, to have live drums and all the kind of problems that come along with them, particularly mm. when in top 40 music these days, right now, live instrumentation is not really the thing. It's like, that's not what's going to convince somebody of the track. And honestly, in this day and age, programming stuff, when you're going to need to make changes is a lot faster than playing stuff. We were dealing in like, you know, Sticks and Phil Collins and Queen, whereas you're dealing more with uh, Miley Cyrus. And I mean, even if you did like, what Bruno Mars, Mark Ronson, uh, Uptown Funk, that can easily be programmed. Yeah, uh, you know, look, the, the, I think the reality is top forty music. Even if it's live drums, for the most part, it's live drums that are chopped up and put onto a grid. It's not that much different than programming a realistic sounding drum kit. Does this gig dominate your world? Not maybe continuously, but when you add it up over the over the course of the year. It's probably six months out of 12. And I would anticipate this year with them doing kind of four releases instead of two, it's going to be even more. You know, we may end up being like seven or eight months out of 12 that I'll be doing this. So you do the kids bop thing, Mm -hmm. but you also do, you write original music for license or placement and shows. Yeah. You've done some some movie stuff and some television stuff because I see Pawn Stars, NFL Football. Sure. Pretty Little Liars. Mm-hmm. You have some stuff in Supersize Me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's an interesting world. And my limited experience with it, only from being kind of involved as like a hired gun, whether to mix or to play drums, I'm always looking at it going, wow, this is kind of a torturous thing in some respects. And I guess it takes a, a particular set of DNA to really grasp what I perceive are very frustrating elements to it because, and tell me if this is what happens in your world, you know, music supervisor or person wanting the music basically comes up with a ridiculous, you know, (laughs) deadline. Hey, we really like something in the vein of, and we need it by tomorrow morning at 9am and it's five o'clock and 
you're in competition with a group of other people. You know, I definitely have done that kind of game. And you're right. It is torturous and brutal for all those reasons that you're that you're listing. But honestly, a lot of that stuff that you're mentioning and a lot of the stuff that I get and I do for that kind of stuff doesn't really work that way. It may be something where a music supervisor says, hey, we're looking for a song for Oh, geez. It's the last day of high school and the boyfriend and girlfriend are um, going to different colleges. Mm. Um, we need a song for that, for that scene when they're, you know, one of them's getting on the bus to leave and the other one's staying behind in the hometown, right? So a lot of times what happens is they, they want something that's similar to something else, like it'd be a big hit. So, you know, maybe they want the Bruno Mars song. For, for their TV show, but it's going to cost them a fortune to get the Bruno Mars song. So how do we get something that's kind of saying the same thing and we can save a few bucks on it and we can get maybe an indie artist to do a song that's similar to that, that addresses the same emotion that kind of carries the scene in the same way. Do you have a, a back catalog of stuff that you kind of go, oh, I might have something that hasn't been used. I can refer them to this. Yeah. Yeah. You end up, you know, if you kind of stick to it over years, you kind of end up with a bunch of, of songs that are kind of, you know, written to these various kind of emotions. And look, nothing, nothing has a shelf life forever. You know, the stuff that was working uh, seven years ago kind of ends up sounding dated or maybe it's been it's been done to death. So you got to kind of refresh things. But yeah, you do end up with a catalog and things get pitched years later. Last week, I was in Nashville for kind of a specific writer's retreat where we're almost everybody was getting together in rooms with three people who were a lot of times strangers or acquaintances. You know, you get a brief that says, um, you know, we want to write a song like, like say, like non-romantic love. We wanted to write a song about um, love, but it's kind of like maybe like the love you'd have for your son or daughter or love a child would have for a parent or not romantic love. So geez, when you think about like what goes on TV and especially advertisements, which are kind of a big source of kind of where you can place these kind of songs too, they sell everything to that kind of emotion, right? They sell you allergy medication. They sell you insurance <laughs> or that medication. You know, they could say it could be a TV scene or something like that. You know, there's a lot of things that kind of speak to that kind of thing. So, so yeah. So, you know, I just did a week in, in Nashville writing to those kind of sinks and, you know, those, I don't know how many people there, 50, 75 people kind of in groups of threes and kind of just, uh, every day writing a song. One day we wrote two and, you know, it's just like, and you come back and make tracks and you know add it to the catalog. They'll get pitched for whatever the specific pitch was that we, you know, that, 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 that brief was for you know, it'll also get pitched down the road. There was one that we did two years ago, didn't hear anything with it for almost two years and then ended up getting picked up for a Heinz commercial. And so you don't know, you know, you, just, you never know. Uh, Whenever I think about advertising and I think about, you know, you know, music placement in that world, the word fickle comes to mind when it comes to the people you're trying to please. Fickle, absolutely. Because you think you're writing to what they say, but what people say and what they want are often two different things. You know, writing for advertising is really tough because whatever you write goes into a room with a half a dozen people, all of whom have kind of thoughts and opinions on music, which could be really disparate. One guy may love Green Day and the other guy loves Nicki Minaj. And it's just like trying to connect those dots can be brutal and you do like many 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 versions of stuff and 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 trying to 
figure out what do people really want when there's not really a language to say what you want because it's music. You can make references. That's helpful, I think, a lot of times. But even with references, you know, a lot of times what somebody refers to and they say, oh, something like Green Day, you know, maybe they just mean they like big guitars and drums, but they may not like that type of vocal at all. They may want something that's melodic or somebody says, oh, I love Mickey, Mickey Minaj. It's like they may not want a rap song or anything. Yeah, it's just like you don't really know what people actually are feeling when they give you that. So it's like a lot of it is trying to you're trying to anticipate what do they really want? And and a lot of times, you know, I may love a song or they may love a song, but it's just like when you put it up against their picture, it doesn't really work. And it's just like, oh, okay, we thought we wanted that feel, but turns out that doesn't work with the picture. We got to switch gears. And yeah, that's that process, you know, and, and it is, it's torturous, but I don't know that there's another way to do it. You know what I mean? Because I guess if words could perfectly describe the music that people are looking for, it would be really easy. And you could probably program a computer to give you exactly what you wanted, but it's not really like that. It's like, there's still a little bit of, you know, magic, I think, that happens when something connects for somebody. And, and you know, sometimes you write songs that you think, oh, this is going to be perfect. Just doesn't react. And then you write other ones where you think, I don't even know what, who's ever going to use this. And then it shows <laughs> up in something. And, you know. Are you working out of your house? Yeah. I um, Last summer, we moved from uh, New York out to Los Angeles areas. So, yeah, um, when we moved out here, that was kind of the plan was let's figure out a way to work at home. I've got a little girl who's finishing second grade and um, just kind of be around more. And I think the beauty of working out in L.A. is kind of like that's what everybody's doing is working out of their house, you know, or, or, or similar kind of situations where you don't have to drive too much. And yeah. um, so, so, so yeah, we're, we kind of converted, it was kind of an oversized garage and I kind of took about two thirds of the garage and, and uh, built it out. And that's, that's where I've been working. That's where we've been doing the, um, you know, cutting vocals for almost everything in here. And, you know, I have a decent sized vocal booth. So it was kind of like doing the calculus, which, Interestingly, I think is a conversation I've been having with almost everybody who kind of does anything that related to like what we all do and from engineers to songwriters. It's just like, man, you got to just kind of figure out a way to keep overhead down and slim things down to what are the necessities. And, you know, when I was in New York, I was working at a studio at Razor and Tie. And it was, you know, it was a big space, a big live room and vocal booth. And you realize where's the real business now for me, at least the reality is, you know, the, my business at least is pretty much cutting great vocals. That's really to me where, where the money is best spent. So it's kind of like, can I, can I get a space at home where I can absolutely cut great vocals comfortably for people with great sounds and all that kind of stuff. And then if we're talking about doing live drums, well, either I'll appropriate something in this room and we'll figure it out here, or we'll just go, someplace else in in LA and and cut live drums for a project but it doesn't happen that often even when I was in New York it was just like in, in the last couple of years it was just like a couple of times a year we cut live drums or I'd get somebody who wanted to do that you know but it's it ended up a lot a lot of people who I think were coming to do kind of more full productions like that were also trying to figure out how to slim things down make things cheaper so they put stuff in their house. You know, one of the bands I was working with, they used to record drums at my studio. They moved it all 
to their house in Long Island. They would record everything there. And rather than paying me to produce everything, just send it over and I'll I'll kind of do the mix, post-production, do the editing and all that kind of stuff. So it seems like that's a trend that everybody's kind of doing is just like, how can you kind of get it done without paying for all this stuff that doesn't get used all the time? You know, the, the, you know I make my living basically on two inputs, max, usually one input. <laughs> We've moved to kind of an a la carte type system, really. You have your basic setup at home where you can do your post-production elements. Yeah. And then if you need live drums or anything else, you either rent out a studio or you, or if you need a guitar track, you know, you call somebody else who plays guitar who's, who also has the same setup. Yeah. Or is, right. I would love to see a study of studio reduction, you know, like, like big commercial studios in comparison to the emergence of home studios I mean, home studios have been going on for many years, but I think it's, I'm sure if we did a study, we'd see that it's grown tremendously just in the last five years alone. Is my, That's a guess. I wouldn't even say just strictly grown tremendously. I think it's probably been growing tremendously for a long time, but it didn't really affect maybe the, the top tier of stuff that's out there. And I'm talking all the way up to your big top 40 acts and Katy Perry's and, uh, you know, and, and on and on like that. It's just like, there was a great interview with Pitbull the other day. And like, there's really not anybody who's kind of <laughs> bigger in top 40 music. And, you know, it's just like, he's, I never rent a studio. I record everything I, where I am in the hotel room. It's like, by the time I get to the studio, set up the studio, blah, 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 blah. I could have recorded two songs in my hotel room. I don't know about you. I can't tell you how many conversations I have with guys who are in bands who record their vocals in a hotel room. Why? Because that's where they are, because they're on the road. And if you have an option of going to find a studio and shelling out a whole bunch of money or pushing a mattress up against the wall and setting up a microphone with some headphones, it's going to be hard to justify spending even 500 bucks a day to go record vocals someplace, no less, you know, where you're going to pay for like a, a top studio and LA or New York. It's just like, what's the payoff really? The, the difference between what I'm going to get at um, Great Studio recording my one track of vocals through one mic, through one compressor, through one preamp versus what I'm going to get at my house is really, it may be nothing. You know what I mean? It's like, I've got a 1073 input and I've got a Tube Tech CL1B and I've got nice microphones and that's pretty much what you're going to be paying for. So why would you why would you do it? The gear is all available. It's the space, really, more than anything, I guess. You know, I was talking to a, a voiceover person the other day who does a little bit of traveling. She takes, I think it's an Apogee mic plugged into her iPad. I mean, she still does like national commercials. Yeah, right. And she does it from wherever she's traveling with that setup. Her clients probably like her better than the guy who needs a studio, right? Because like, you're going to call her first because it's no problem and she's going to get it back to you quickly. And that's kind of what's valued, I think, in that world. It's like, you got to turn things around quickly and, and give them quality. If you can do that on your iPad, why not? It's the result. It's the end product that matters. And I always say it, and I'm sure people are like, oh God, he's going to use that analogy yeah. again. But I'm a fan, the, man. I know what you're going to say. It's the... <laughs> Hey, as long as the meal tastes good, do you care what stove or pot I used? No, not really. You know, I think there is a, there is a small percentage of the people 
making stuff out there. You know, they want to make this kind of record in this way um, with this process. And I think that's cool. And that's, you know, that's um, if that's your creativity and that's part of your what you want to express. And that's part of the whole process is important. And if process is important to you for the album you want to make, then God bless, record everything live to tape and make a White Stripes record or something like that. You know what I mean? But that's not what everybody necessarily needs to do. And if that's not an integral part of what you're trying to say, then it's kind of crazy to kind of put yourself, put those shackles on yourself, both in terms of the workflow, I think, and in terms of the economics of it. It's just like, Mm -hmm. you know, if you can, look, it's hard to sell records these days, right? So it's just like, an indie band that you were producing, if you told these bands you can make, we could sell 20,000 records, they would be over the moon, right? That would be just like such a grand slam home run, right? But what is that actually going to turn out to in terms of what's your, what's the gross going to be for those 20,000 records? And what can you really afford to put into that record, knowing that the best thing ever that could ever happen to you would be to sell 20,000 of them? What does that really afford you in terms of what you can spend on that record if you want to still be able to live off of some of that money and, and make a career out of this? You know what I mean? Because you do have to, the, the practicality of, of trying to make a living doing this kind of stuff is a lot different than it used to be, right? Right. So I'm curious, okay, these kids bop things, I mean, now I know, I know kids bought because my wife has bought a couple of the records. Uh, I have, I have two boys ages six and nine and I'm totally familiar with the minute I saw it. I was like, I got to talk to this guy. (laughs) I got to find out all about this. Well, first of all, how did you get the gig and how do you stay competitive so that those that are putting these records out continue to say, Oh, we're obviously we're going to continue to go to Gary. He he gives us, you know, this price and he gets it done like this. What what is it that you do to maintain an edge to stay in on this to 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 keep your foot in the door on on the Kids Bop records? I work my ass off, man. And first off, you've got to deliver this stuff on time. Making this record is is one small bit of this entire process and this entire brand and this entire thing, right? A lot of it, you've got to work backwards. When do we want to release this record? Because that's important in terms of retail, and that's important in terms of advertising, and that's important in terms of other things. So if they want to release this record September 1st, then that means that I've got to get it to them by this date. And that date doesn't have any flexibility to it, because if I come in 10 days late, then they can't get everything in terms of reproduction, in terms of marketing, in terms of all that stuff. They need to make that deadline for when it's actually going to be released. So make damn sure that you deliver everything on time. You know, for this last record, I did probably five or six weeks straight where I was doing 12 to 14 hour days to finish 20 some odd mixes. You know what I mean? And you're also working around when are these kids available to sing because they're on tour. So maybe I can get them for four days here. Maybe I can get them for a couple of days there. So it's just like juggling all that stuff so that you can kind of deliver the record that they want and kind of being flexible. And, you know, sometimes it means you got to work five weeks straight to get it done. So I would say in terms of practical stuff, it's just like, you know, deliver quality and deliver quality on time. I think you need need to maintain a certain level of competitiveness with so that even your worst track 
that you rush through because you just have no time to spend any more time on X, Y, and Z on this track. And it's just got to get done that whatever that your worst track on the album is still going to sound competitive. Might hmm. not be the most exciting mix that you deliver. It might not be, um, you know, you might listen back and oh, I wish I turned that down. I wish I turned this, but you don't really have time to make those kind of creative decisions that you do when you're doing other stuff. Obviously, if you're working with a band and making a record, man, you go through that mix and you can go through it for days and people are oftentimes sending you comments a week or two weeks later and you kind of have this luxury of kind of going over that. It's just like with this stuff, I don't have that luxury. It's just like, you know, I basically have a day to kind of take everything uh, in its raw form and get it all together and turn it out as a mix. And can you kind of get it to that level where it's going to sound competitive in that amount of time? It's tricky. And I would say every time you do it, it gets, you learn new ways to kind of get to that finish line a little bit easier. You know, do you a B between the original and and the track you're doing constantly? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's huge. And, 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 and again, like, you know, partially because you want it to sound the same, but I think kind of the idea of trying to make it quote unquote sound the same is a little bit elusive, right? Because and you could just never make anything really sound this, the same, the same, especially if you're talking about live instruments or anything like that. It, it samples, you're never going to get the exact same sample, but your A being like, what's the feel when it comes up at the end of this chorus and drops back into the second verse, I need to have the same feel of my track that they have on their track. So it's a lot of A being to kind of make sure that your vibe is, is right. You know? And your tools that you use to do this, what what is that centered around for you as far as, you know, DAW? Like, what what are you using? Pro tools, virtual instruments, your basic stuff probably that everybody's using, you know, BFD, Omnisphere, all that complete, all that kind of stuff. Okay. Um, Ivory is great for piano sounds, um, unbelievably great, really. And your standard kind of selection of stuff, I don't think there's anything really too crazy it's nothing crazy. remarkable there i don't think so man and you i mean you're a fan of the show you've heard me ask this question what's mm-hmm. what's the philosophy economically with you and your relationship with your equipment and the money you spend do you suffer from gear lust you know i would say that it's not so much as i used to i would say look i think when you're younger you definitely feel like whatever that thing that you can't have is the difference between what it sounds like i think to a certain extent that's true I, you know the the difference to me from recording an acoustic guitar through say a Mackie when I, in, in 1999 or something like that to when I finally got a real preamp, it's just like, Oh, well that certainly makes recording acoustic guitars a lot easier because I just plugged it into this 1073 and now I sound like a Rolling Stones record. It's just like, there's no tweaking that you have to really do. Right. It's just like, it just sounds good. But I think at this point beyond that, man, I've, I've got um, a good selection of stuff, actual hardware you know, I don't really feel like I have the gear lust. I really never, the only time I really even got into debt, I think for gear was when I had to actually buy a Pro Tools HD system. But, uh, you know, other than that, up until that point, it's all just like, and I did this with guitars too, man, because it's like, I spent a lot of years as a guitar player before I ever kind of started doing production stuff at all, you know, and it'd be like the same thing, man, you buy it, you buy the guitar you can afford, you save up some more money, you trade in that one, you add an extra few hundred bucks to that one, you get the next one. And and you kind of do that with everything. And over the course of years, you end up with some 
with some decent stuff, you know, the Pro Tools HD rig was a big deal because I wasn't really making a ton of money. And like now you got to shell out 20 at the time. It was like 20 grand, you know, in the oh. 2000s. Luckily, it's a lot cheaper now, you know, for the for more power you get it for a lot cheaper. But uh, yeah, I'm on my cheapest Pro Tools rig ever yeah. now compared to all the right. previous four. Right. Yeah. So, you you know, what I'm talking about I yeah. can't even get into it, really. I never I was on uh, I was working on digital performer for a lot of years right up until i got to a point where i was doing a track for like a it was like must have been spice girls era or something like that so it was like five young girls singing and the whole thing was done on digital performer and they and they said we love it we just want to come in and re-record some background vocals for this and i was just like oh my god my system is completely maxed out. I'm not even going to be able to get it into record because it's just like, you know, with that native system, it was just like, that's the one thing that at that time, at least Pro Tools HD was awesome because it was just like, no matter what's going on in your mix, you hit record and it will still <laughs> record without delay, without it stuttering and all that. And I was like, man, you know, I, cause I had to spend a whole day kind of just like bouncing stuff down, freezing tracks, printing all the DSP, just so I could get a session that I could then have them come in and record background vocals. I was just like, I'm never doing this again. And like, you know, it was probably the next day I started figuring out, all right, how am I going to afford to get this HD system? Because this is crazy. I'm smiling because I know your pain. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I'm like, oh yeah. To kind of remember when uh, native systems were, were no fun. Prior to this, you were a session guitar player on the East Coast, is that correct? Yeah. Many years ago. Let's see. And, you know, for most of the 90s, I was living in Philadelphia, playing in a lot of cover bands and other kind of stuff. So I was playing guitar probably five or six nights a week in various, sometimes cover gigs, sometimes local singer-songwriter kind of stuff, just various kind of things. And then moved to New York, it's right before 9-11, so it was 2001, and then started doing sessions in new york got in with a couple of great producers and just you know things just kind of lined up and was able to get some decent sessions kind of like right off the bat and you know session work being what it is and where that whole kind of industry is going you know i got a bunch of work like right after i got there and then the phone didn't really ring for about six months honestly a lot of things came out of that that period where i had absolutely nothing to do I did a record with a friend who I knew from Philadelphia named Michael Tolcher, and we ended up doing a record for J Records. And that came out of this period where it was just like, what are we going to do? And he came up and we made an EP and, you know, pitched it to these producers I was working for. And they picked it up and they got a label deal out and blah, 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 blah. It's just like, that was all from, that was like, let's try production. I mean, that same period, I did a lot of library music, which was at the time be something like, um, let's say NBC produces NHL hockey. Part of these hockey broadcasts is throwing in music on the fly in these live, in these live broadcasts. So we're coming into, a, we're going to show this guy's stats and you got to have something that takes you into the stat. Take, or we're going into a commercial or uh, this is the music for the promo for whatever is going to be coming up for the next. So I just did a bunch of these kind of like uh, instrumental kind of tracks and with different vibes and different kind of feels and, all from having nothing better to do. And those things kind of ended up in some libraries and they still get used today. And it's, you know, 15 years later, it's kind of like, you know, I was learning music production. I think in doing those tracks, it's like the musical part of it, the playing was not really an issue for me, but, you know, learning how to, how to program drums and uh, learning how to make a, a, a probably a pretty crappy mix, but nevertheless, 
a mix that was acceptable on some level. You know what I mean? That's just like, you know, nobody was complaining about the mix. They were using it in, in these, in these little TV spots and stuff like that. So, you know, kind of learned a lot, I think just by having nothing better to do. (laughs) I always feel like the artistic world and the, the corporate or the business world, there's some things like, let's say you're dealing with uh, an original band, you know, like you mentioned earlier, you know, you can get a million different mix revisions when you're dealing with, with, a, with an original band. Yeah. But when you get into a more corporate structure yeah. and like you're, let's say you're churning out some music for a library, mm-hmm. people just don't seem to be as picky unless there's something glaringly wrong. You know, it's like, yeah, we like the song. Uh, they never say, do you think you could turn, you know, the, the delay up just a little bit? No, no. I, think, I mean, it's, I think, it never gets to that. No, it really doesn't. I think in that world, it's kind of an all or nothing kind of thing. It's just like you turn it in, they're either going to use it or they're just going to ignore you. <laughs> you're not going to get, there's no second chance. You know what I mean? It's just like you kind of, you present this music and it either works or it doesn't. And nobody's going nobody's gonna to hold your hand and say, you know, this would be much better if. Right. They're depending on you to you know, uh, do the quality control. And if you're, and if you're not doing it, you're really not being competitive with everybody else who's doing it, you know, because there are a lot of people doing it, you know, and a lot of really super talented people. Why? Probably because economically there's still money in TV and film, and there's really not a whole lot of money left in music in and of itself. And I think it's not that much different with the kids music, right? You know, it's just like, Right. Music as a whole has definitely shrunk the music business, the people buying records, people you know spending money on music. But the kids' music probably shrinking at a much slower rate than everything else for similar reasons. You know, it's parents buying stuff for, for their kids. There's a certain aspect where, you, you know, you buy mu- presents for kids and you want to actually have something to to hand to them as opposed to music fans. Music Real music fans don't really care if they have the... The CD that much. They want to have a good sounding file or if just give me access to some way to hear it, you know, that aside from like the audiophile kind of fans and stuff like that. But, you know, the kids music thing is still, people will still spend money on. Just to highlight your point of lack of money in the music world, I went to a Barnes and Noble the other day that I've gone to a zillion times since it opened, uh, I don't know, 15 years ago. Yeah. And I was walking around and I was, I was with my wife and I said, they've moved something. Something's different. She goes, oh yeah, they took the whole music section out. That's gone. Oh, wow. And I was like, oh, right. you're right. Right. This, that, it was, you know, I mean, it was like a, a pretty sizable footprint. Yeah. But there's a very small section where they sell vinyl. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. I could fit it here in my, my little mix room right. and... It takes up a, a small, right. I don't know what they call those in caps. It takes right. up a small sure. in cap. It's funny too, because like if you go to Target, cro- you can buy a Crosley turntable for like 80 bucks. <laughs> you can buy uh, a copy of Rubber Soul for 20 bucks yeah. on vinyl. Right. It's an odd world when in retail with regards to music when I, when I encounter it on a daily basis now. Yeah. There's a question I wanted to ask you. You you obviously you start as a guitar player, and you it's pretty clear to me you made this transition and growth into the world of production and all that comes with that. How did your business mind develop 
alongside that artistic part of your brain. And what can you tell me about what you've learned about business and music business along the way? I made a ton of mistakes. I think would probably be the main would be the main thing. And I would say, what is the, even the value of what you're doing? I think it's hard to even when you're starting out to even have any kind of idea what is the value of of the work that you're doing. How do you charge for it? And you know, I kind of figured that out by making a lot of mistakes, either by underselling what I was doing and and doing it for a lot cheaper than than it was probably worth, and on the other side by probably trying to get more than I was actually worth, which is probably even a worse mistake to make because ultimately I want to be busy. I want to be working and I want to be, you know, you learn a lot by doing any of these gigs, even if you don't necessarily get paid a lot. I would say you got to stay involved and whatever you need to do to get in the game is what you need to do. And I would say probably when I was starting out, I didn't understand that well enough, you know what I mean? And, Mm -hmm. And probably feeling that you know, trying to peg what your value is and all this kind of stuff, I would have spent a lot less energy on trying to figure out what my value is as opposed to spending energy on, I just want to be involved and I want to do this. And let's figure that out down the road. Because I think ultimately that stuff takes care of itself. When you do, when you mm-hmm. do good work and people know that they can rely on you for good work and they trust you, because ultimately I think all this stuff generally comes down to trust and relationships. And that takes a long time to develop, but that's the essential part of it. If it, Obviously, if you're working with a band, they need to trust you implicitly, right? But on the corporate side of things too, it's just like they, you need, they need to know that if they call you for this thing and they're going to pay you for this thing, that you're going to deliver something that they can use that's on time, good quality, and is what they want. And you you're not able to kind of make those relationships without actually showing that you can do the work. So show that you can do the work, you know, over and over again, show that you can do the work. And at some point that your, your value will become apparent. I'm telling you this and it, it sounds really smart and I still make the same mistake probably on a monthly basis by, by ignoring this advice. Right. But, uh, you know, on the same token, it's just like do the work, produce something great and, and it comes back. How many years have you been involved with Kids Bob? It's been uh, a good, what's that, 12, 13 years overall. And six of them have been kind of been producing the whole thing. You know, once you're in something like that, for the long term, you obviously, over time, do you, do you start to think, okay, well, now I need to get a raise. So it's going to cost them more money. So... How do you deal with that? Or, or have you worked for the same price for the last several years for them? You know, honestly, it's pretty much been about the same thing for the last X number of years. And I, I would not say that it is a tremendously high paying gig in terms of what's out there, but it does offer you steady work. Would I like it if it was more money? Is it, is it worth more money? You know, I put in a ton of hours or I broke it down to what I'm getting paid by the hour. It's probably not a whole lot, but on the same token, what's the landscape? In the early days, these records would all go gold. They would all go to 500,000. And now, you know, we've had records that opened at number two on the Billboard Top 200, which have still not gone gold. So am I going to go and say, hey, you guys really need to pay me a ton more money? I realize I'm looking at your numbers. I realize you're selling half the records you were selling when we started this. I'm not sure it's a great 
it's a great move. I hope at some point the whole thing turns around and becomes, you know, tremendously more profitable. And then you maybe feel more comfortable asking for some more money. But, um, you know, I think you got to be careful with that. You know, it's just like, you know, I feel tremendously lucky to be, to be working and to be working on a project that at least there's an audience for. I think that alone is a really hard thing to kind of figure out in the, in the music business. Like, how do you do something that somebody actually wants? That's tricky, man, because that's really the essence of how do you make a living at this is doing something that somebody wants. You know, being creative and making cool stuff is great. And I definitely think there's a place for that. And I like to keep a place for that in my life and my career. But ultimately, if you want to pay the bills, you need to be delivering stuff that people want. If the stuff that you're doing creatively is also stuff that people want and are willing to pay for, well, you're in a great spot. But that's a pretty rare kind of thing, you know what I mean? When all those things line up. A lot of the, like when I mentioned Nashville, look, a lot of the people who show up for these writing retreat kind of things where we're writing for TV and film, they're artists, you know what I mean? And they have artist projects. And it's like, how do you use the skills that you have? We have art and we have craft, right? We have, um, your art requires you to have certain skills, which kind of involve the craft of songwriting and and music production and stuff like that. And a lot of artists have these skills that they can use for other things like writing for TV and film. This is a way that I can use what I have to make some money while I'm also pursuing the other stuff, which is, you know, maybe my, my heart, what I want to express as an artist, you know? And Mm -hmm. I think that's a conversation that, well, look, it's a conversation that your kind of whole podcast is kind of predicated on and it's and it's a conversation that i have with people all the time engineers and musicians of just like how do you use the skills that we have to figure out a way to kind of make it pay and create an actual business out of this thing and it's just like you know all kinds of things come up man i work with great engineers who are just trying to figure out you know maybe they can record podcasts for people because podcasts are getting more popular and records are getting less popular that's one reason this podcast came up because about three years ago, I inherited a gig from a friend, which involved editing and assembling a podcast for a human resources company. And I've been doing it and I haven't changed the price for three years because it is the one steady gig that I do. And it's interesting as I was doing it, I was like, I should do a podcast. (laughs) What you're doing and Pensado's place is another great example. It's just like, to me, man, that's really where things are exciting right now in terms of just like, man, you're saying I don't have to watch the crap that's on TV that's made for millions of people to watch. It's just kind of like lowest common denominator stuff that to reach the broadest audience. Just like I can actually watch somebody talking about things that me and a few hundred other people care about. But we all care about it so much that we tune in every single week to see who's Matt interviewing this week or who's Dave Pensato interviewing. They were all, you know, there's tons of these kind of things for really narrow focuses, man. And that, that's an exciting place to be where you can really talk about the stuff that super excites you and just a few other people and be able to have an audience for it. And man, that's exciting. A lot of this in this new era is just kind of like find the open doors and walk through the open door and and see what's going to happen, man. Because it's just like what was working 20 years ago when, when everybody who's trying to be a rock star now was growing up and reading about what it was like to be a rock star. It's like that world is gone. So if you're trying to go kind of latch on to what you thought it was going to be like, kind of trying to hook onto 
it's a fantasy. You know what I mean? It's your image of what you think this business is going to be like. And I think the reality of this business, A, even, even at the height of the business, the reality of the business is not what people kind of imagined it to be. It's not what you read in the press. And when you look at this new era, man, that's more, that's nobody even knows what the future of this whole thing is going to be and how to, and how to make it work. So it's just like, how do you stay involved and, and, and stay busy and walk through open doors and do things that you're interested in. And it's just like, all that stuff is just like, I think everybody's got to look at, at all of that. You know what I mean? And you don't know what's going to turn out. There's no roadmap for this kind of thing, you know? But yeah, it's like, you have to take your, take stock of your skills and which is, I mean, it's clear to me that, I mean, you could, you were a guitar player, you could play a little bass and I'm sure over time you figured out, you know, the ins and the outs of production. And eventually you were like, oh, sure, I could do this kids bop thing and that'd be a regular gig. Or I could do music for, you know, build up a library for licensing, or I could do music for television or movies. And I mean, shit, you know, I'm a drummer. And if I could play, uh, if I played keyboards or I played guitar, I think I would probably spin my world a little more right. in that direction. But as it turns out, right, I right. don't sure. play publicly. <laughs> <laughs> so I really kind of, uh, I lean more heavily on the mm-hmm. mixing, recording, production end yep. of, of that. And uh, and then when somebody calls me and says, hey, can you, can you come play drums? I'm like, pfft. In fact, I had stopped playing drums after playing professionally for a number of years. And it occurred to me one day, I was like, you're such a dumb shit. You can play drums really well. And here you are not playing. What, what, what are you thinking? And that's when I was like, okay, I'm going to get back into playing because it can supplement so, my and income. That's kind of like what I was kind of describing to you as we're talking about, like, how, you know, how, how did I, how do you get here? It's kind of like, well, man, I can I can play guitar pretty well, and I can play a lot of different styles of guitar because I've been playing cover gigs for X number of years, and you know, it's just like I can play a lot of different stuff and a lot of stuff that nobody would really even probably call me for because it's just like, man, if you're looking for a Paul Jackson Jr. kind of guitar part, you're probably not going to call the the uh, the white guy from New York, you know what I mean? The guy from Jersey or something like like. There's a lot of guys who can really do that, and and that feels like their thing, but it's like. You know, I can do that, but I'm not going to get that call. There's a hundred guys who are in line who are going to get that call before me. But, you know, I can certainly do that in, in Pro Tools. You know, I can certainly do that at home and I can produce, you know, 15 different tracks in 15 different styles and I can play guitar and on all of them. And, you know, my bass skills are pretty decent. I can play a little bit of piano. I can program MIDI and just like I kind of work in that. And it's just like so... Yeah, I can do. I have all these musical skills, but there's not really a market for me anymore. Maybe in in the session world, and you know, there's guys who are way better guitar players than me. You know, with way more credits and way more cred, who have done some of my favorite albums of all time, who are not getting calls for sessions. So, <laughs> you know, is you know, having skills and 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 experience is one thing. It's just like having the phone ringing is another thing. And I would say probably even the, the the best qualified guys with the best track record in the session world or, or any of these kind of worlds is not, the phone's not ringing as much as it used to. And when the phone does ring, you know, the amounts are not what they used to be. And, you know, you got a lot of people who are, who are older, who are older now working less and for less money than they were working for 15 years ago. So it's just like, that's not a, that's not a sustainable track for, for a career clinging on to that, that old economy maybe is not really 
you know, let's say you play guitar or let's just say that you mix and that's yeah. all that you do. You can't just say, you can't just base your whole life on I'm the most incredible mix engineer on the planet. You have to like, you got to be the, you got to reply <laughs> to people's emails yeah. in a timely manner. You have to be sociable and get along with people and be able to take direction as well as be a leader in some respects on certain things. It's, it's so multifaceted these days that you kind of have to be a jack of all trades, but not just of your talent, but the talents that come with supporting your talent, like the emails and the negotiations of money. And 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 like you're saying, the jack of all trades thing, you know, that's when you look at this business and where it's going, it's just like kind of, that's the, the service that I think is growing in terms of, in terms of this business, like if you can be one guy who we can pay one price to, who can take care of everything for us, that's kind of attractive for a lot of people's businesses. You know what I mean? Rather than dealing with a lot of moving parts, knowing that you're the guy and I can call you and you'll take care of it from beginning to end, you know, and there's not any excuses and there's no blanks to fill in or anything like that. It's just like, it's, it's done. And, and, and look, those are, those are the guys who I want to work with too, right? Like when I, when I, use guys to do some of these, um, work on some of these instrumental tracks for the, for the kids, Bob stuff, or uh, if I hire a session musician, right. If I need a guy who plays trumpet or a guy who plays saxophone or a guy who's a really good piano player to do something, it's just like, I want a guy who I know I'm going to call him up. If it's something that he's able to do, he's going to say, yeah, I can do it. I'm going to take care of it and it's going to come back and it's going to be done. And he's going to deliver me you know, I don't know, say it's a piano part. It's like, Hey, I printed the piano part in ivory. I also gave you the MIDI and here's a second version. I wasn't sure how, if you wanted the left and the right hand separated or not, or something like that. And man, when it comes back, it's just like, thank you. That's a lot different than, than doing a session with somebody, right. And hiring a piano player to come in and I got to set up this whole thing for him. And I got to sit there with him while he's doing the piano part. And I got, and all he does is play piano. It's just like, that's great, but that's not going to really help me. You know what I mean? It's like, I need the guy who can play piano and also can deliver the right stuff with the right parts and all the stuff we were talking about before. It's like, yeah, you can't always get the piano part exactly, exactly like the original one for a kid's pop record, but I need a guy who can give me the vibe and understands that that's what he's got to do is deliver the vibe and deliver the, and deliver the tracks. And it's the same thing with, with, you know, with all this stuff. If I'm hiring a young programmer to do some of these kid's pop tracks, it's just like, do I expect it to be absolutely perfect and exactly what I would do when it comes back? No, but I need a guy who's going to be there when I say, Hey, listen, man, that soft synth that you have for the, for the bass, it's just like your filter is just way too low on it. I just need you to open up the filter for me so I can, it's like, he's got to know what I'm talking about. You know, it's just like, he's got to be down with making that change and he's got to send me over the, the new stem of that thing quickly because I don't have really time to hold your hand through the whole thing we're going to work together on this thing, but you need to be kind of a self-starter and you need to want to deliver a great track, you know, and not, and, and not just trying to get, you know, I want to get through the end of this thing and then, and, and try and get paid for it and be done with it. It's like, I need a guy who's invested. If I'm going to do a kid's pop record, I want to do the most kick-ass kid's pop record that I can possibly do. I want, I want my thing to pop. That's what the excitement in doing all this stuff. And if I'm going to sit there and tweak knobs and and be a mixer, I want my mix to be as good as I can make it. And if I'm going to do the guitar part, I want to do a great guitar part. Because if you're not doing that, then you're, I mean, you're, you're, you're kind of, you're walking around like a zombie. 
You can't build a career out of shitty work. You, you can't build a career out of shitty work. You can't build a career out of trying to just get by. You, you know, it's just like, there's just way too much competition and honestly, way too many talented people out there, man. And you got to want to make something great if for no other reason than, than for yourself. The guys who I know who, who really take the time to, to do the work on these tracks, I call them back because I want that guy. And the guys who kind of coast through it and try and, and be like, oh, man, and they got everybody's got an excuse and everybody's got to put all their time to come. Over. Oh, yeah, well, I did that because of this and this and this. It's like, I don't really care. I don't care. You Just might have a right. great reason and, and you might be right and I might be totally wrong. But what I'm telling you is <laughs> like that bass part is not working in this song and I need it to groove like this and I need you to make those full quarter notes and not cut them off after an eighth. I need it to last a full, you know, whatever the thing is. Going back to what you were saying about hiring guys for, for yeah. various jobs, when you call them to make a change, the last thing you want to hear is an excuse what you want to hear is, oh, okay, yeah, no problem. I'll take care of it. You know, it's okay to, to not get something 100% right, but then when somebody comes back at you and says, hey, we need to make a change, if they face resistance and, oh, I don't know, it's like, <laughs> I got to do this, and I, yeah. oh my gosh, I have to eat dinner yeah. in an hour. And it's like, you want to hear, okay, Gary, yeah, no problem. I'll take care of it. Uh, I think I can have it to you by six o'clock tonight. Honestly, man, that's what I do with my clients. When Kids Bob calls at the last minute and says, hey, we're cutting a video to this song and we need to replace this vocal with that vocal. I'm like, oh, man, come on, man. I just finished. It's perfect the way. I mean, there's it's great the way I do. Do you sure you want to do that? Because no, you go in there, you grab the vocal, you do whatever you have to do. You turn it around so that they get what they what they need quickly. It's not really my job to tell them what they need. Now, at times, yeah, there's. People ask your opinion creatively, you're involved in stuff, all that kind of stuff. But ultimately, man, it's just like people want what they want. And when I hire somebody, I want what I want. <laughs> you know, and it's not because it's not, um, it's not, oh, this is my gig and I'm paying you and you got to do this. It's just like, we're all trying to reach the finish line and we're all trying to do it under a lot of stress and with a deadline and, um, and all that kind of stuff and, and a, a tight, tight budget. budget. So if you don't understand that that's where, I, that's how I'm working on this thing. You know, I'm not acting like a prima donna to my client. So I certainly can't have guys who are doing a sliver of this work, you know, acting like prima donnas with me or, you know, maybe not even prima donnas, maybe not the word, it's just because you don't get a lot of that. But it's like, you know, excuses, reasons why. You know, what stands out about you, Gary, is that you, you said a few things earlier, and I think that you are empathetic to whether it's a corporate thing or not to the, to the business limitations and needs of people where you think you put on that. Okay. Well, if I was in that position yeah. and I'm trying to sell records, you were talking about that with regards yeah. to kids bought yeah. sales. I think that that's a, a quality that uh, a lot of people need or, or some don't have and, and they need it or they should be aware of it. It's to the ability to put that hat on to think like, what is the other oh, guy so dealing right. with? You're so right. And, and, it's and how can I adapt to make myself more attractive to those how can, I give, how can I give them what they need? Most of your guests, uh, I think, have been on the more, um, probably more like what you do, right? More on the, 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 the real engineers. Like I'm a fake engineer. You know what I mean? It's like I can plug a microphone in and, and I can, yeah, but you mix those kids bop records. Though. Okay. So maybe I can do some, so maybe I can do some mixing, you know what I mean? But my experience with like, God forbid, miking drums or anything like that. It's just like, look, I've done it all. 
I, you know, I make it up as I go along. I have a little tips here and there, man. When I hire an engineer to cut vocals for these kids, Bob tracks, you know, the engineer I hire, he's great. You know what I mean? It's just like, he's a real engineer. It's just like, I really knows how to track. That's not me. You know what I mean? And so it's just like, I'm definitely coming at it from this more, you know, as a musician kind of transitioning into figuring out how to do some of these technical things so that I can deliver. But ultimately at the end of the day, it's just like, you're trying to please your client. And if everybody's got a relationship with somebody else all the way down the line and all those relations, and you know, we're kind of at the, we're on the edge of that thing. Cause we're actually making the product. You know what I mean? It's just like to all those people up the line, it's just like, somebody has got to make the product. Somebody has got to um, market the product. Somebody has got to actually get the product, you know, to the people who want to buy it. This is like, there's a whole line of, th- of relationships and a whole line of, um, you know, kind of dynamics that are going on that if you're not aware of that on the, on the, on the tail end where we sit, it's just like, man, you're missing so much of, of really what's going on in the, in the, in the kind of the, the real world that's working. I think that's how you become a working engineer, musician, mix, whatever it is, you know, and it's just like, give people what they want. Question about mixing the yeah. kids bot thing. Uh, are, are you doing the mixing a hundred percent or do you have point, somebody I, else that I kind of figured out? I think my energies probably are best spent on vocals, recording the vocals with the kids, getting the performances and the parts that I need out of them. And then kind of working the vocal, you know, all the post-production and editing, prepping the session so that it's all laid out properly. Everything, man. Cause it, I mean, to me at this point, it's just like, when I do these mixes for these songs, it's just like, I pretty much go at it from the lead vocals on down. And it's just like, once I get that, if I can listen to my vocal arrangement with a click and it's working, I know I'm pretty much going to be home free. The rest of it, I can work out. You know what I mean? But it's just like, especially with the kids bop thing, it's like, it's about kids singing pop songs. If you can't get the vocals with the kids singing pop songs to work as an acapella, you're pretty much lost. You know what I mean? So it's just like, I kind of focus on from the vocals, getting the vocals, the arrangement, right. Um, get, you know, tuning pocket, all that kind of stuff. Right. And then to the final mix. And I've kind of determined that if I can find guys who can do tracks for me that are competitive, even if it's not maybe the exact track that I would have done to of a Taylor Swift song or whatever, you know, it's just like, I mm-hmm. can work with that and I can make it, I can create the vibe and I can make it convincing if I get my vocals together. So, you know, vocals on to, to final mix is really where I'm kind of feeling like at this point, this may change in another six months or 12 months because I feel like it's a moving target. Do you mix it all in the box? Oh, yeah. You I, have to. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I see, uh, I see some uh, focals and some uh, proacts. I've got some Focal Twin Sixes, which actually, uh-huh. they came out with a new one recently, which I just ordered. So I, I'll hopefully be getting those soon. They're the trios. A pair of Pro-Ax. Uh, the Pro-Ax I didn't even get till we moved out here to, to LA. And then I've got, I don't know if you can see, I got the little Aventones. Oh, you got the Avent- Aventones. <laughs> you know, right. Aventones on, on the right side of my head, which honestly, man, that's that's where I get it right in terms of the vocals, you know? It's just like I kind of mm-hmm. get everything sounding okay. And then I just go to those Aventones for a few hours. And it's just like working the vocals in with kick and snare kind of stuff. And it's just like that to me is, uh, again, going back to vibe, right? The Aventones and those little speakers, 
all you're going to get out of them is vibe. You know what I mean? It's just like, is the energy working right? Is it coming up and going down where it needs to? Can I hear stuff? And is anything kind of just annoying in my ear? And it's like, after that, it's just like, oh, let me go to these other speakers. And, you know, if they sound good on the pro acts, if they sound, you know, the, the focals will kind of I have a sub with the focals too. So a lot, especially a lot of top 40 stuff these days. And like, you know, the low end stuff is just kind of so important because a lot of this stuff is so, so sparse that it might just really be a snare, a kick and, and something super low, you know, under 90 kind of stuff. I use the sub for those um, with the focals to kind of get the really low end stuff. Um, do you have the Pro X? No, I have, uh, <laughs> I have NS10M Studios and I have a oh, yeah. old uh, Klein and Hummel uh, O300s. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and I stopped fast. using a sub because I don't think my room is right for it. And once I stopped yeah. using a sub, my low end started to fall into place a lot better. <laughs> I, I I stopped tweaking out about it and second guessing. Yeah. Well, the room, yeah, with the sub, man, it's like if the room is if the room is really a problem down there, it makes it it makes it tough. Oh, such a pain. And look, in not the not ass. to not to give free advertising to anybody, but man, when I when I moved in here and I, I was just like, I'm not sure how this room is gonna work out. Especially when I first moved out here, they were still working on my room. So I was up in my master bedroom and I kind of set up everything up in my master bedroom for a few months, really. And I did a whole I did a whole kids bop record up there and mixed it in that bedroom. But I got this attack wall. ASC is the name of the company, and they make this attack wall stuff. Oh yeah which is super expensive, man. But I'll tell you, man, it just got everything together. And you end up with this sweet spot where it's just like, I'm in my bedroom. There's no treatment anywhere. But it's like, if I'm sitting between the speakers and you got all this kind of treatment to the sides of you and, and, and between the speakers and these giant monitor stands that are kind of bass traps too, it's just like, I was stunned, man. It's just like, this is, you know, this to me, it's like, again, like that's the future a lot of people want to be able to mix in a room and not have to spend tens of thousands of dollars doing renovations, but just want to be able to work in that room. You know, it's just like, man, these kind of yeah. products and there's somebody else who just, uh, oh, was that, was that, that may have been uh, Ryan on your show mentioned uh, another company. Delta H. Stuff? Delta H too. Yeah. I, on that website, after I, I heard you talking about that, I'm just like, man, it seems like totally different philosophy and totally different kind of means to getting to the end, but it's like the same idea. Take your, Take your untreated, crappy shaped, you know, my room is, you know, part of the ceiling is 14 feet high, part of it's 12, part of it's nine. I'm kind of to one side. It's just like, it's less than ideal, but you know what? It translates better than in the studio I was in, in New York, which was a, which was a real commercial, you know, built out with it. You know, it's just like. Was it a big culture shock for you to come from the East coast to the West coast? Uh, yeah, I would say the first, the first few months were were uh were definitely interesting um i look i love it out here i love the people i like the whole i like the whole vibe of and i've, I've been coming to california for years so it's just like i i love it out here um but in terms of like um look, new york is very straight to the point and the expectations are very high and the hand-holding level is very low and here it was just like i'm saying from starting from like uh renovating this garage to um, just in general, getting people to call you back and just all that kind of stuff. Everything's just like a lot slower. Your expectations have to be a lot kind of um, 
if you give people more time, I think your expectations have to be a little bit lower. I think people are not in New York. Everybody's always thinking three or four steps ahead, I think. And you're expected to kind of keep up with that. You don't really get the same vibe out here, which is wonderful in, all, in a lot of respects. You know what I mean? It's like, I, I almost feel like I hit the lottery. It's like, wait a minute, you're telling me I can still make a living doing this stuff and not be like completely grinding all the time and just like, you know, trying to anticipate everything that's going to come. It's like, you can actually do this and, and you know, you can still kind of make a living and just kind of, and, and go for a walk in the middle of the day. Cause that's what people out here seem to be doing. You know what I mean? It's just like you, you go out in the middle of the day and just, if it's a nice day and, you, and it always is a nice day down here, it's like you go take a hike for an hour, you go walk around the block or you run down to the beach or something and you can still work and you go back home and you know, I can work till 10 or 11 at night if I have to and that kind of thing. So that's a lot different than New York, which I kind of feel was a little bit more of like a, uh, you know, nine to five grind. Not that I ever worked nine to five, but it was like, I would leave home, I would go to the studio, I would pound it out in the studio for X number of hours, and then I would go home. You know, and here it's kind of just like, I, it's a little bit, I feel like things are a little bit more integrated in terms of, I might wake up super early, get the kid off to school, do a couple hours of vocal tuning, um, go for a walk, go do some errands, maybe go, you know, go to her school, give the kids a spelling test, volunteer, go see their performance, come back in the afternoon, do a mix on another song, you know, it's just like, it kind of just seems to be more uh, integrated and just kind of less, uh, uh, I don't know, compartmentalized maybe than, than New York. Dig it, man. Yeah. Well, I'm going to have to go eat lunch before I go get my kids from school. Right on. Dig it. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me on. And I appreciate it, man. It's been, it's been great. Right on. Pleasure. All right, man. Take care. Thanks, brother. See ya. All right, another great interview down with Mr. Gary Phillips. That was that was super cool, uh, and just another avenue of uh, audio in the world of audio. <laughs> so, for the listener, I will uh, I will see you next week, or rather, you will hear me next week. I always say see, but you know what I mean. And uh, I'm looking forward to episode number twenty five, and I hope you are too. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.